Hi, I'm Dubba, I'm the Director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF Podcast. Now, something that has been increasingly prevalent in our MTF labs and at Music Tech Fest events in recent months has been artificial intelligence. And it's something that we're going to be going even deeper on in just a couple of weeks. So I thought that this would be a good moment to have a chat with Christian Gutmann. Christian's a scientist and an entrepreneur. He's the founder of the Nordic Artificial Intelligence Institute. He's adjunct and associate professor at the University of New South Wales in Australia in the field of AI, adjunct researcher at the Karolinska Institute, a medical university in Sweden, also in the field of AI. He's written and edited seven books, over 50 publications, and has registered four patents in the field of AI. He's founded and been at the ground level of several startups in healthcare, finance, retail, and music recommendation, all of which use AI and which have been acquired by the likes of Microsoft and IBM. He's a mentor to the CEOs of several AI-based startups and companies, and he's also vice president in charge of AI at Tieto, an IT software and service company with around 15,000 employees in 20 countries. So when it comes to AI, Christian's someone who has a fair idea what he's talking about. We sat down for a chat in Stockholm about clever chess computers, the ability to spot cats in photographs, the inevitable robot uprising and the overthrow and imminent extinction of the human race, and whether we're ultimately okay with that. Here's Christian Gutmann. Christian Gutmann, thank you so much for joining us for the MTF podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So you're probably the right person to ask this question. What's and how do we distinguish uh, neural networks, machine learning, artificial intelligence? Are they subsets of the same thing? Are they overlapping Venn diagrams? Are they mm. completely distinct things? How do you... Mm. So, I mean, there are the way how I look at it is that artificial intelligence is the broad umbrella term of these different types of subsections. And then you have machine learning as being one of the different uh, subsections. And then below that you have... Um, you have deep learning, for example, or transfer learning or supervised learning, these types of, uh, you know, like approaches. And then you have technologies and neural networks. When you implement them, that would be an AI technology. Mm -hmm. So tool that you can start using to identify patterns or, you know, look at clusters or use it for reinforcement, reinforcement learning or see, you know, cats and pictures and so on. So that's the way how I would look at it, I guess. And then, yeah. It's funny how often cats and pictures comes up in this conversation because my next question is, what's it really for? Because surely right. finding cats and pictures is something we can already do. Yeah, exactly. That's pretty well uh, done. And with the event of ImageNet, which was a few years ago, you, you could actually show that AI is much better in recognizing things, pictures, you know, like things in pictures. And that's that that's what an AI is much better in doing. And that's not just cats, but pretty much everything else that you can imagine which will become useful. So, for example, one case that we um, we were pushing and my team was working on at Theater was uh, in retail. So we have uh, robots that go through the aisles in supermarkets and check <clears throat> what's uh, what's in the what's in the shelves right and so if something is missing so it would detect like bread or or other items right and then essentially reshelf those items when they're missing and so detecting um, those breads and the types of breads and how much is left that's one of those uh, typical tasks that mm -hmm. you can do with neural networks, one of so many, uh, for example. So that would be one. Another one, when it comes to this machine vision, machine learning type approach, I said you can start detecting, uh, detect patterns in uh, tunnels, which we also did. Uh, you can see if there are abnormalities in these 
tunnels where cars drive through and you see, for example, uh, you have lots of footage, video footage of... Um, of these tunnels and when you see pedestrians walking through accidents happening then you can essentially flag that as being something that's abnormal that shouldn't happen in these types of tunnels mm -hmm. and that's examples where we, where we have been using uh, neural networks for example these types of technologies together often with other types of technologies such as sensor fusion or 5g or iot technologies and so on this sounds very much in the realm of things that we can already do without artificial intelligence. And this is really kind of one of the parts where I get confused is why are we trying to solve problems that we don't have? Uh, or or is, there, is that a step towards something that artificial intelligence will ultimately be for that we can't yet do? Well, that's, I think that's the whole idea with AI. As soon as we do AI, we know that that's something we wouldn't call AI anymore, right? So as soon as you're able to perform a certain task, which before you thought would be only doable by humans because they have the capabilities of performing that task such as chess playing or you know driving a car and so on once you achieve that type of task you uh, put it in the category of things well that they you know an ai can do these types of things so so it's a computer can do that a machine can do that right so so and then to the question i didn't quite get it like do you mean that um uh you know why do we do why do we try to solve tasks which are not considered a problem or well I mean, uh, cats yeah. and pictures is, is the really oh, obvious right, one right. I, I, you know people can already <laughs> spot cats and pictures so yeah. that's not a problem that people are struggling with <clears throat> um, so a computerized oh. solution to that is doesn't seem like the end goal it seems like a step mm. towards something else mm. what is it that you imagine AI will ultimately be able to do that is something that's beyond our capabilities so so one other definition of AI is, for example, that it does all these types of tasks and makes all these types of decisions um, and the tasks being physical or cognitive, which require capabilities that usually humans only possess. And these capabilities would be of cognitive, physical or emotional nature. So when you think about it, and this is sort of the ambition and this is what AI is really doing today, then that means that AI will be doing essentially many of the tasks that we are doing normally in our daily lives, like making coffee or being a nurse or being a doctor, which could be done by an AI. And it could do it with higher, uh, with a higher level of accuracy, with more efficiency, for example. So now it won't, won't be cats, but it would be, let's say, MRIs, right? That's a typical application domain in, in the medical domain, mm -hmm. where you have MRIs, we have X-rays, and there's now plenty, plenty of evidence that an AI and a machine learning algorithm can detect the the abnormal patterns in MRIs much, much better than a radiologist. So that doesn't mean that the radiologist would uh, lose their job tomorrow, but that task of identifying these patterns um, would be something that an AI is better able to do. And you as a patient then would most likely prefer such a uh, machine or an AI to make this type of decision if it does it with 95% accuracy as a human, which might be tired, which might not be as skilled, you know, and does it at 75% accuracy. Right, for sure. That'd be one example. Or, for example, the whole self-driving car movement. So in 10, 15 years' time, I don't know, do you have kids? Are they younger than five years or? No, no. 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 But those that have kids that are younger than five years, those kids are unlikely to learn how to drive a car. I mean, they will not need to do that because in 15, 20 years' time, you have cars that will be self-driving. And with that also comes the safety aspect. So the cars, there won't be accidents. Virtually, if all cars or most of the cars are self-driving, there won't be any, any accidents. That's another 
thing that I'm foreseeing, which will be happening with very great uh, likelihood. And this also brings all these unforeseen consequences, and that's why it's such a big topic in, mm. in, the, uh, in the government circles and in many uh, companies uh, as to what will happen with people that have a job based on transport. So about 200 million people in the world, I think 400 million people in the world are involved in transporting things from A to B. Right. Right. Things or people from A to B. And that's not counting people who cook in roadside cafes or, you know, all, all, all those mm. sorts of things. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there's a plenty of open questions of how to deal with those types of challenges. You know, I guess with any, any major technological shift, you've got a load of unintended consequences. Yeah. Um, is there any way to mitigate against those? Or I often say there are sort of two types of outcomes. One is that we look at AI technology as being um, like what happens with technologies in general. It usually creates in the beginning question marks, but in the long run, it creates new jobs. You know, it creates new opportunities um, for people to find a way of adding value to the, you know, to the way how you create products or services or what it is. So that's that's one likely scenario when you look back at what mobile phones did, or or computers, or electricity. You know, those technologies created many more possibilities for us. Mm-hmm. The other scenario, and that's also discussed quite heavily, is the future of work. So what if all these tasks that we are doing today can be automated and can be done much better? How will our future look like? What value do we have as humans in the society, right? Well, where do we stand? What What is the uniqueness of us? Uh, and some people jump to things like, oh, we can do lots of arts, you know, like uh, the, the basic things will be given to us because there's food, there's transport and medication, medicine will be sort of automated and so on. But even that part will be used for creative tasks too, you know. So there's lots of examples by Professor David Cope, for example, who uses AI to uh, to compose music. And it, it uh, he uh, taught his AI system, uh, um, uh, Johann Sebastian Bach's uh, compositions. And um, it, it took him seven years, but it imitated um, his style so well that it created new compositions, right? And and it became so good that it was indistinguishable from a human playing, right. for example. So I, I would probably <coughs> argue that the next step would be to not create music in the style of Bach, but to create music in the style of the AI, uh, and and that's mm. perhaps where genuine creativity comes in. Do you think that's achievable? Well, I mean, when these discussions pop up, so when I started my journey doing my doing AI, you know, like 25, 30 years ago almost, I got very fascinated in exactly these questions. So what's consciousness? You know, what is creativity? What are the unique values that are perhaps the, you know, the, the biggest challenges to, to create? you know, by a machine. The first question you have to ask yourself, define what you mean by creativity. Mm. Because if you cannot define that, and this is, by the way, very difficult to define creativity, consciousness, even intelligence, then it will be very hard to, <laughs> you know, say, well, is it possible to create such a thing or not? But in principle, I see a lot of signals that we that we going into these directions. So everything that you can describe and define, I think will there's a very high likelihood that machine will be able to do it in one way or another. What do you mean by intelligence? Yeah. Um, It is the ability to make decisions and perform tasks um, based on those emotional, cognitive, and physical abilities and capabilities that humans usually possess. So the way you solve problems, the way you also make... um, the way how you make sense of data, um, 
and you essentially, I think I look at us, and this is based on my psych psychology degree also, that we are essentially biological algorithm. So we take in, you take in, I take in lots of data every day and we take actions based on that data, which go back. I remember I had many discussions and, and thoughts about the topic of free will. Right? Do we actually have a free will or not? Or is it a result of essentially of who we are biologically and certain random effects that we are exposed to? So, so um, I think we are biological algorithms essentially. Taking data, we take in impulses and observations, and then based on that, we we acting uh, in our environment and with other people. Because not everybody thinks that. I mean, uh, Roger Penrose, for instance, the Emperor's New Mind, uh, basically is predicated on the idea that we're not reducible to, uh, you know, algorithms. That there is something more complex, more kind of uh, ephemeral going on within mm. the the human mind. You're, mm. you're more essentially a, me a mm. mechanical about how. Well, I mean, the there's no so so two two points to this. Like, first, there is no evidence for that to be the case. I mean, we have been for a long, long time. Science has been trying to find that little extra in us. Sure. You know, and and do and the life sciences by and large do think of us as being exactly those types of um, algorithms, if you like, your mechanisms, your know, biomechanisms in our brain, and and lots of other you know mechanisms that we have in our body. Mm -hmm. So I think um, the evidence suggests at the moment that there isn't some extra thing. We're just extremely complex, and some very magic, fantastic things come out of us, either as individuals or as groups. So. Uh, so that would be my response. But I'm happy to take a discussion with uh, Well, I was, I was going to say, Dennis, you, I mean, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> drawn to the Roger Penrose argument purely because I feel like it's the more optimistic position, um, that there is something special about us, that there is something that isn't mm. reproducible by machines. But that might be delusional. I mean, and, and is that necessarily a, a pessimistic view of uh, the direction of, of technologies? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, the thing is when... I find it terribly fascinating if something is so complex that it creates, you know, individuals like us, mm -hmm. you know, us having this discussion now and having the dialogue and understanding things around us and creating music and making great food. I mean, that's very, very fascinating. And finding the mechanisms that are behind that is, a, is certainly, for me, more fascinating and intriguing than, let's say, makes it seem cold, you know. That's my my position. So, so yeah, I would say... That's sort of my angle into this. You know. Right. Uh, to what extent can we be made redundant and to what extent will that be your fault? Yeah, <laughs> oh, exactly. Um, so I think that is a question, right? I think when it comes to many, many of the jobs and tasks in the future, it is quite likely that in the coming decades we see many of these typical tasks that we are doing to disappear from a point of view that we need to do them to earn money and to make a living, right? I think that that will disappear more and more. We're already at a stage where I, I don't think many people die of starvation, at least in Europe at the moment, and the overall um, uh, poverty levels have come up dramatically in the world. So we're moving into this direction. And um, so I think there will be more of this, and this is why this very deep question, which I discussed with other uh other of my colleagues in the community, like Francesca Rossi, for example, from, from um, IBM and the University in Italy, where we look at, well, what is the role that we should play in this highly digitized, highly data-driven future that we will be living in? And we will be living in that future in 20 or 30 years' time. And I think it's a very open question. I'm happy to debate it. And and then the then I don't know if I should take responsibility for a scenario. For a scenario. I, I do... I think this is certainly something that happens 
many people contribute to this um, to this transformation, and I think it's inevitable. It's it's just something that really you see so many so so much need to make sense of that data and the fact that f you can use it for good things such as improving health or uh, you know re removing cancer or reducing cancer risks and all these types of things so i think people want that right and um i think that's that's important so so i would i would hope that if i'm responsible for certain things to become redundant i'm not saying that people will become redundant but certain tasks to become redundant that these tasks that will become redundant are those that are dangerous uh, to people that perform them today or that are so complex that they don't deliver the value to the individuals, to patients, for example, that they uh -huh. could if a machine does it and so on. So if, I'm, if those types of things disappear for people, then I'd be very happy, I think. Right. Okay, so that, that sort of answers my question, which is about what do you hope will happen as a result of your work. But mm. um, obviously there's an economic dimension to the mm. impact of AI, but there's also an ethical dimension to, you know, not just can we do these things and how do we make it sustainable from a, from an economic perspective, but should we do these things? Um, and, and how do you make those decisions and who should be involved in that discussion? Mm. So, so first I think it is certainly, it affects all of us. So I always encourage as many as possible to be part of this discussion, no matter who you are and where you are, I think it because it affects us all, it should be very, very important and very interesting for any individual to participate in this discussion and to get, get to know what it is all about. Mm -hmm. So that's one. The second part I always say is that when you have these discussions, make sure that you have someone in the group or in the panel that understands the topic in its depth. Right, So you would not discuss, let's say, for example, brain surgery or, or cancer research or something if you do not have an ex expert in this area in the group. So that mm -hmm. is just this, that type of message. Right. And so that's sort of the basic message. And then whom else would you want to have in this um, discussion? I think in the first instance for the next 10, 20 years, you would want to have those industry representatives in these meetings which would be most affected, uh, impacted by these types of technologies. Mm -hmm. um, and also, I think, representatives then from certain communities, you know, that represent people that would be mostly impacted by certain groups, perhaps, you know, that would be mostly impacted by by these types of technologies, you know, those that are perhaps more, um, uh, you know, fragile or maybe not so digitally enabled and so on. So that I think that would be very important. Because mm -hmm. it's interesting to me that Google put together their AI ethics committee famously recently without anybody who'd studied ethics on it mm. and with some people with, let's say, questionable ethics. Mm. Um, and so to what extent can we trust industry to take the lead on this? Mm. So that's a good question. And I think I... We, for example, published a tier to the tier to AI guidelines, right? Which I was very uh, frank about. I wanted them to be in place. I said, it's in part for me to sleep at night. You know, I want everyone that works with AI to know what the potential effects would be, you know? So that, that I think is very important. But I said at the same time, we are not going to be the ones that have the final word on that. It's just, I don't want to wait for the, uh, for the government or for regulators or for, for someone else to come up with solutions, which might take years for mm. it to come into effect. Right? So we took a very proactive step in that sense, but should we be the ones taking charge of it? No, I don't think so. I think it will be perhaps taking a similar route than, for example, um, what happened in the medical field, right? I mean, perhaps 200 
years ago, maybe even a hundred years ago, there were many charlatans, you know, that would mm -hmm. essentially suggest, hey, here, take this and you will be healed. And and so, you know, th that's why we have the FDA and the Lehrkmädelsregister here in Sweden, the equivalent more or less, uh, that will start looking at, you know, what does medication actually do? And we also have the scientific method, you know, double-blind trials, which you run three times, you know, to test these. So I hope that it won't be similarly complex because it also takes back the medical field a little bit and its speed of creating new new solutions, you know, for for uh, diseases. But but I think something similar will come up so that not everyone will be, let's say, using data which can impact people, people's health or people's fortune uh, in ways which is not understood, you know, to some level. That doesn't mean that you will understand it completely, but you will need to understand it to a level where, it, you know, where it becomes... Um, useful and and you know you understand at least some consequences sure sure yeah. you said you wanted to be able to sleep at night what keeps you awake i mean what's the nightmare scenario well i mean for example when you do use you know when you have data scientists or when you start applying ai or these data-driven methods this context now there are other things that could uh, you know keep me awake at night but in this context it would be that um you know it will be used for purposes and you don't you haven't understood the consequences of these technologies. So when people get very enthusiastic, which happens a fair bit, so we are really at an age where this is so new, so fresh, people see like, wow, it can detect CATs or MRIs or what it is, right? But but what is the data? Is it data that is uh, balanced, meaning that you know what it detects will be equally valuable for anyone that uses the system? Uh, you know, is it safe enough? Is it, for example, something called adversarial attacks? So when you have something that you recognize and you can fool the system in, in you know, understanding something different about the world, like self-driving cars and so on. Mm -hmm. So when you start having people being enthusiastic, rushing into this field, which happens a fair bit, right? And then the application of these technologies is not thought through. And um, it's a little bit, I compare this a little bit like with when you look again in medicine, because I'm also at the Karolinska Institute, I think no one in their right mind would think about, uh, you know, uh, giving someone a book and a quick lesson about, you know, how to do brain surgery uh, and then just give them a scalpel and say, well, just go for it, you know, like next week there's some people coming in. So you need to, you know, that is something that, that worries me because in the medical world, you have you need a fair bit of track record before you come to that point. You need to have a pretty thorough education to understand holistically how a person functions, if you like, and then you need to have lots of practice, and then you get the scalpel under supervision of people that are experienced. And, and in the data science field at the moment, it's like, well, there's data, you know, go for it. If, if there's some value that potentially comes out of it. But again, it's like, you know, in immigration cases, when you apply for visas, if you give people access to certain services, you know, making sure that everything is done as fair and as robust as would be considered reasonable and, and highest possible standards, you know. To that end, there's a lot of people talking about the transparency of the decision-making process, and, and we want a sort of AI that is explainable. Uh, mm. To what extent is that realistic? Well, in some cases, it's realistic and very feasible. <clears throat> if you make it transparent and uh, explainable, particularly when you have AI technologies that are not these black box approaches, such as, for example, um, you know, uh, deep learning networks and so on. So they are uh, much less transparent and much harder to understand what they do. But if you have decision trees, for example, so I did some research and some 
uh, work a few years back whereby we balanced the provenance, so the transparency against the accuracy. So, you know, you will start um, having algorithms whereby you can see why and how they make the decisions, but you will have to counter that against the uh, the accuracy that it delivers, right? So so it's quite feasible, and, uh, and, um, but having said that, I'm aware that in Europe, there are now quite a lot of efforts to make these more black box type approaches more explainable and more transparent too. Right. And I know that DARPA in the US is now, I think, spending 2.5 billion or something to make all these neural networks more explainable. But in some cases, you don't even want to make them transparent or, or publish them, let's say, because it makes them also uh, more vulnerable mm-hmm. for manipulation, right? Sure. I mean, uh, the, my example, I guess, for this is something like AlphaGo, mm. which, which mm. W- you know, ultimately there might have been a decision tree at work, but what it was working on was essentially intuition based on data. Mm. Or at least that's what it <clears throat> looks like from the outside. And, like, there's a massive amount of data because it studied all of these historical games. Mm. But why this stone was put exactly there at this point in the game mm. It was mm. seemed uh, unfathomable. Mm. Um, and it seemed like that was the reason it was so good. Mm. Um, and so are we giving something up by going, no, no, you need to have an if-then you know, decision path uh, mm. in order to be able to explain this? Is something mm. lost in that? It is, of course, hard because in the end of the day, what you have today is like a big mathematical massive formula, like a matrix of <laughs> many weights and many, many data points, right? So that, that's all you have, which is a bit highly simplified version of what's in our brain. Mm-hmm. So you couldn't really explain precisely what's happening when you make a particular decision, right? Sure. Because you would have to break it down. But the, the, the case that I think was more mind-boggling is, of course, uh, AlphaGo Zero, right? Whereby it didn't learn at all from the wisdom of humans. Uh-huh. It just created its own understanding of how the game should be played. And right. I, think, I think that was a much more mind-boggling situation because I think it was move 42 in the game. I think it was never, ever played before by any human being ever. Wow. And it was apparently the decisive move, right, it, in, in this entire game. And it was extremely unintuitive. Uh-huh. Experts of the game said, well, why did the, you know, system What sort of idiot it? would put that stuff? Yeah, 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 along those lines. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so that's one part. And the second part is, as you said, it cannot be even explained. So the system, what the system got, AlphaGo Zero got, was not the data of humankind, but it received the um, the rules of the game only. And so this is really quite um, a fundamental insight. And we are now really looking into, well, how can we use such a technology whereby we just give it the rules of the game, the rules of the problem, right? Mm -hmm. And then you figure out what the solution is rather than teaching the AI based on lots and lots of data, which is today sort of the normal way of approaching it, right? That's why all the discussions about data and, and, and how much you need and all these types of things. I'm kind of curious how we got here. I mean, there seems to have been some really big leaps in mm. AI and in and, and periods of, like by the decade, for instance. What was the journey that got us here? And are, are we due for another big leap? As you know, AI has been around for quite some time, for about 70 years, right? So the efforts were in early days. Alan Turing in 1950, you know, published the book Can Machines Think? So it started back then. And in recent times, what got us here today and why everyone talks about AI is pretty much what happened with deep learning, recurrent uh, neural networks, CNNs, uh, and the insight that these neural networks, which started to fade away in the AI community, you said, wow, they don't converge, they're complex, why do we use them? Mm -hmm. Suddenly started to show, uh, after some tweaks, immense 
quality improvements in how they detect certain things and how quick they are. And that mm. that really then got applicable to, you know, for many companies like Baidu, Facebook, Google and so on. And not just for recognition of items and books, but also for uh, very practical industries where you recommend items like on Amazon and so on. So that really brought us to where we are today. And everyone talks about AI, but as I said earlier, it is only one part in the entire AI area. And when you ask about, well, what, what will be the sort of the next leap forward? I mean, one part is likely going to be in machine learning. So we have now this so-called supervised learning. So you need a lot of data. But I think um, one part will, will be this type of deep reinforcement learning. So we will have, we need much less data. Um, and, and also the, um, the way th where the machine learns just after a few steps. So after a few iterations, I think that is where a key will lie in making these systems even more effective. So when you learn something new and I show you how to pour water into a glass, you're very quickly learning that after maybe one iteration, right? So mm -hmm. an, a an AI system today would need 100,000 iterations of that to even start grasping what that is. And that's just recognition. It's not reasoning. It's not understanding what's happening. It's just recognizing what needs to be done. Mm. So I think, but that, that will be some big breakthrough because it would essentially mean that we are not relying on huge amounts of data. We can show the system just once or a few times what needs to be done. And so I think that will be a big breakthrough also in, in regard to um, what we have currently in Europe, which is a GDPR. So the data is not flowing as fluid than, let's say, in other places in the world, like China. Right. Because, I mean, the, the the amount of data available, does that put us at a major disadvantage? Uh, as, and, and do you think that there's a trade-off that could be made there that would make things better? From the perspective of building efficient AI systems quickly, it's certainly a massive challenge. I think that's that's without doubt. Um, Privacy is a problem. Is what well, <laughs> for that particular purpose, and then don't get me wrong, I think the idea of GDPR is completely correct, right? The intention is, is very much correct. But I also think that the the level of um, abstraction, like what individuals now need to do with this GDPR, I think it's above most of us. I mean, I read the part of the GDPR, but I think very few people do. And when it comes to the practicalities of, you know, clicking buttons and uh, agreeing to the terms of conditions... Very few people find that practical, and I wouldn't know. I probably have hundreds of different accounts across, you know, hotels and airlines, and I don't know where. And those profiles, I don't even know they exist anymore. I've uh -huh. forgotten most of them, let alone my right of being forgotten in the GDPR being, having any effect. So, if, you know, in fact, I go around, I test sometimes these sort of systems, and I was part of a gym chain in, in Sweden, and then I... Um, uh, I became a member for some time and then I wanted to test if I can remove myself out of the system, right? So say, well, delete everything. So I sent an email, I called them up, delete everything. And so it is. it did not happen. So I could log in still, right? Like right. three months later as an example. It's in principle a good idea, but I think it needs to be much more uh, practical. It needs to have a different layer of abstraction to become useful. Because here in Sweden, of course, everything's tied to our, our personal numbers. Mm. Um, and surely that's difficult to disentangle. Mm. Is, is that, Absolutely. again, is that, is that another problem or is that, you know, part of the solution? 
Well, I mean, it's part of a solution when it comes to building systems that would be more effective in, for example, predicting individuals' health status or their needs, you know, when it comes to financial loans or those types of practical things. But my uh, grocery shopping is tied to my personal yeah, number. So, so you know, if I buy a bar of chocolate <clears> and that's <throat> tied to the same number that's tied to my medical records, there's, <clears> there's going to be that kind of uh, intersection of data. Should that all be one pool of data? and Should machines that don't reveal that data to other human beings be able to make decisions based on that? information well if you choose to do so then i think it's 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 fine i mean i think if you as an individual are completely aware of what these processes do and how the data is pulled together and if you feel that the value that you receive as a result of those data sources coming together makes sense to you mm -hmm. then i think uh, it should be done it should then of course not be used for things outside of what you have agreed with that data to be done mm -hmm. right so it should only be what you agreed to have done with it, if that makes sense. Yeah, but there's a whole lot of uses that I'm not going to be able to imagine that other people will be able to profit from, presumably. Not if you don't agree with it. But what I'm saying yeah. is that I don't know what those uses are, so I have no basis on which to agree or disagree. Mm, well, wouldn't they need to then explain what they are, what these things would be then, no? You tell me. I mean, we, we, ha we already yeah. have Facebook in the world. Yeah. And Facebook, apart from the odd three to five billion dollar fine, mm. uh, is broadly a legal entity mm. that does a whole lot of stuff with our data that we just have no idea what that is. Mm. And so we don't have the opportunity to, to agree or disagree. Mm. And there are algorithms and, and uh, neural networks at work behind yes. the scenes. Yes. And we don't know what they do. Yep. Um, good or bad. Okay, if that's the case, that shouldn't happen, right? I mean, and and um, and my understanding is now that Facebook, Google, many of the companies, American companies in particular, but also other companies from other countries, have to know they got a, a very hefty fine, and I'm sure it made a difference in their thinking. And I do understand really because it's like one mm. month of their revenue. It's 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 not even a dent in mm. their annual income. Mm. Do you think that's going to change their behavior in any way? I think, I think it has or it has changed their behavior. I think the pressure is higher. <clears throat> I mean, um, if you're losing trust with the users, also, I mean, that's another factor, right? I mean, you have, of course, the authorities which will start putting fines on you and mm -hmm. put pressure on you and say, well, you can't even operate here in Europe if you don't follow these laws and if you don't have your data centers here and so on. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that's one part, and the other one is, of course, I think the public becomes increasingly aware of that. So I think they run a big risk and being less, let's say, um, losing the trust with the customer. And I think that's the most horrible scenario. I think, I think the pressure is increasing. Would it, did it now change everything from one day to another? Probably not, right? But I think it's, it's going more into this direction. I think we're becoming so. increasingly aware that we're living in a dystopian technological society yep. as far as possible. Yep. But I don't know if there's yep. any choices that a lot of us have in response to that. So um, it's, yeah, it's That's a tricky one, one from that from that perspective. Mm. So apart from how we got here from AI, how did you get here? What's your story? Was this a, a childhood dream to become a you know an expert in computer thinking, or tell me about the the child Christian? What were you taking apart, making things work? Yeah, I started really early, getting into the whole computer world, and then I became. I think I have sort of two parts of my character. One is that I'm very much engineer, scientific minded. You know, I mm -hmm. find that terribly fascinating. And I started programming when I was 13. You know, I had a, had a good old Commodore 64 back in the days, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, and uh, that was good fun. And that was one part, and it, it got me really interested. I started watching certain movies, which were perhaps not 
known for their enormously great acting skills, like for example Knight Rider or something. So uh-huh. I said a little slightly embarrassed here to say that, but I think the point there wasn't wasn't the great acting, but I was very fascinating in in this in this car which had intelligence to support people. Right? It uh-huh. was uh, one of these first examples in the in the science fiction world where you had an AI system being having a personality, you know, and having having the ability to communicate and understand its environment well, in the eighties and seventies. I think that's the real difference mm. too. It actually, you know, I mean, this is the goes back to your definition of intelligence. Mm. Um, it, it was making decisions, mm. but it was actually aware and it was it was sentient. And mm. I think is that the the target? Is that what? Uh, that was certainly one. Also, the first questions I had when I started my PhD, right? So uh-huh. I, I, my, I think my my one of my PhD supervisors was saying, "Well, Christian, you can't just talk about consciousness. That's such a loaded term, right? Mm-hmm. You need to start specifying it. You know, awareness, essentially having self awareness, and it gets you very quickly into philosophical topics, right? Mm-hmm. And it also starts." It, at least for me, I realized that it is just so hard to define that. It's not defined. That's why it isn't defined, right? Right. So, uh, but yeah, that, that's certainly one fascination. How can you build some entity that has that awareness, that has the ability to make connections to others and, you know, sets its own goals, m- takes its own initiatives, you know, was certainly one of the many fascinating uh, topics at the time. And then the other part of my uh, personality, let's say, is, to find out how we humans work. And that uh-huh. is what brought me down the path of uh, studying psychology and, sure. and, you know, understanding when and how we make decisions and um, how we, why we, I think one reason why we are intelligent is also we need this ability to work with each other. I think that is a that is a very big point. And I use these lessons um, learned in psychology uh, and try to transfer them into how we build AI systems, essentially. So right. that, that was something that... Um, Definitely fascinated me early on, I'd say. What did your parents do and how did that affect where you've ended up? Huh. So in those days, I think I was one of the few at the whole school that had this computer type, uh, slightly nerdy, uh-huh. you know, um, nerdy path. And I think my parents overall saw, from a practical point of view, I think parents tend to be more practical. What's my son, my kids are going to do and what will they be? And, uh-huh. and so they were happy to see overall that well it seems one part of what he's doing is it and computers and everyone tells us that that stuff will be the future Uh so they were i think generally quite happy when it came to the whole ai part i I think it was it's always more difficult to explain and i guess you know on a high level so i broke it down so my phd thesis for example back in the days when i explained it to my mom and my grandma which was always a, it's a good exercise, by the way, if you do highly complex thing, you break it down to something very practical. Sure. Um, but it turned out to be quite explainable. It's like how you have several AIs and how they make decisions with each other in an optimal way, right? So so it became, they, they thought, well, it sort of makes sense, yeah, at least the way how I explained it. So, so they were quite content with uh, me moving into this direction. Were and, they in and, the kind of scientific world at all? Not so much, no. Actually... So my mom worked much more as a chef, for example. You know, she was more uh, hands-on when it came to the food and cooking and those types of things. And um, and that's maybe in part some of my papers, they had examples in cooking in it, right? So how would you make an AI collaborate with others to create a dish or something of that sort? So I'd be, I'd, I wouldn't be surprised if that had an influence, you know, from where she comes from, but it was more practical. Sure, sure. Where were you growing up? Because uh, you, you're sort of... German, Australian, you've lived in Dubai, you mentioned, um, what's the, 
geographic story. Yeah, so I often, I mean, I still grew up, I feel, you know, I still, I'm still growing up in okay. the sense that, you know, every experience that I have is, is influencing me and how I'm thinking about the world, about my life. Taking but, in more data, processing. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. right. Exactly, maybe changes. <laughs> Developing within. the algorithm. Exactly right, exactly right. Spot on. Uh, but I, I, I grew up physically, I was uh, in Germany when I was young, uh -huh. and then I uh, also stayed in Luxembourg a fair bit because I had good friends that, you know, we were working from a, you know, computer perspective and AI perspective together. And, um, and then I moved to Australia, uh, did much of my education there. Um, and yeah, so I think before I came to Sweden, I was really a lot in Australia and, mm -hmm. and I could say much less of what happened in Germany over the last 30 years or so, uh -huh. I'd say. And then I would say that, you know, as you said, Dubai, I was in Japan for some time. And those experiences are really orthogonal in my my world because when you live in Western countries, Sweden, Germany, Australia, the US is by and large, it's about the same value settings, right? It's sure. not, but if you start living in the Middle East or in Japan, for me at least, it was a big, I became very humbled about, you know, looking at those value systems that exist there and seeing people, how they live, um, and how they prosper and how they live with each other, which is just very different. So it's a true culture shock, you know, and I think, and that that's something that hum humbled me and I think it gave me a very different perspective on what's happening, for example, in Sweden or in the Nordic countries and so on. Has that so, affected how you approached AI? I would say so. For, for example, one thing is that in the, I, I hope I get this together, but in the, in Japan and I think also in China, the view on how AI will become part of daily life is much more inviting. So I think they have a much more um, open concept as to what could be part of society. That's why robots, for example, are, let's say, not considered to be a strange externality that will somehow invade our life and it's cold and, and so on. And um, that that's some lessons that I learned uh, over time. So the approach to those types of technologies are much more inclusive in some sense than in Europe. Um, so I, I think, and that also makes me, again, when I think about the AI ethics guidelines and so on, trying to not have too many or a more global outlook on those types of guidelines and in, in making sure that we have a representation of different thoughts and different value systems, you know, as much as makes sense, you know, to find a, find a common view. So that's certainly one thing. And then just from a practical perspective, you see that, Again, countries like uh, Japan have been investing very, very heavily into robotics. So they see the applications in, in hospitals where a robot can lift a, a patient from one bed to another or um, or taking, uh, for, for example, drones or robots in rescue scenarios. So they're much more open and in integrating these types of technologies in the environment, mm -hmm. I would say. So, so uh, that's... Uh, That's certainly an eye-opener. And I understand this much, much better after having been in, in societies where I needed to adopt and understand and accept different sort of value systems. Right. Mm. One of the things I've noticed while you've been talking about AI is that it seems to be that the intelligences or the, the algorithms in question are uh, <laughs> task-specific. Yeah, find pictures of cats, move a patient from bed A to bed B. Can we generalize intelligence in computers? Mm, that is a, that is one of those big questions, right? So, um, f 
for the listeners, there's this concept of narrow artificial intelligence, right, which you just described. It's an AI that does a task really, really well, maybe really, really quick and and very accurate, right? And that's narrow AI, like, you know, identification, recognition. And then there's the term artificial general intelligence, which you're probably referring to, which is starting to be an AI that has a much higher level so it will be able to do all the tasks that we will be doing at the same level so and um and then there's actually also the term which lies in the middle it's called artificial broad intelligence and that's what we would be aiming for at theater whereby you can start having a system do two or three tasks together really well Mm -hmm. so instead of just focusing on one thing very well you start combining them so having a chatbot that can um for example also detect uh, whether you have certain needs or you might have a problem in the way how you, uh, you know, in your health or something of that sort. So you start combining certain AI technologies uh, in, in this, you know, in this framework of AI. And so was the question also like, can we achieve that? Or uh, I, I guess, yeah. I mean, uh, like mm. an example would be, uh, you know, there's uh, an AI that can spot a Frisbee in a photo but wouldn't have any clue what oh, summer yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Can, so, can we yeah. get there? Mm-hmm. You can divide roughly these two areas where you have recognition of things, uh-huh. right? Which is what you said, you can see a Frisbee and then you have reasoning, right? Uh-huh. That's completely different. Seeing that something exists doesn't mean you know what it is. Yep. And there's a lot of work um, on that too, which is we're much further away <laughs> from from having a big breakthrough in that, in that area. But having said that, you know, some of these decision tree algorithms and so on, or for example, planning, there's a big area in artificial intelligence, which is called uh, autonomous planning, essentially, whereby you let... Uh, systems plan out a very very complex set of actions and are essentially able to react to changes in the environment so it needs to have a certain level of awareness right and so the reasoning as to how you would create this plan is sort of in the plan creation so there's it's not like there's nothing when it comes to reasoning and the you know the the um, awareness of the system or what it means to throw the frisbee or something but we're certainly much further away from that as being a breakthrough, you know, that... Sure. Uh, and the next level of abstraction beyond that, I guess, is metaphor and, you know, poetic thinking and yeah. that sort of thing, which I guess comes back to our conversation of, you know, essentially, are the musicians safe? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, safe from what, you know? I mean, that's the thing. Like, maybe the, it will be a liberation too, right? Um, but yeah, you're right. And the it was an algorithm... I try to remember the use case. It was actually detecting a sarcasm, Right. In texts and jokes, right? And yeah. it was detecting them, I think, at 80% accuracy in certain documents um, and therefore would highlight in which documents it would be. And it was there was a very nifty use case for that uh-huh. type of thing, you know. I think it might have been used in a company where you would see, you know, what documents were written or what emails, was it emails? I don't know, maybe we go into territory <laughs> we don't want to go into. But it was essentially then detecting, could learn uh, what that meant you know yeah but but then again it's a further step to actually then being sarcastic itself Mm -hmm. uh when it felt like it so i think that's that's an interesting thing i guess the final thing i have from an industry perspective is is there an industry that's going to be untouched by this are there people out there going well you know at least my business is safe from this because we just keep making what we make or is that kind of a naive perspective i think in the long run it's going to be it's a naive perspective you know in the long run so so there will certainly be certain areas which will be safer i'd say will be less touched but i think all of them will be touched i think there's no doubt 
And the general rule of thumb is that if <clears throat> the tasks that you're doing are very data-driven and are somewhat repetitive, it's much more likely they will be impacted earlier. So, And those that are more that require, let's say, much more variability in how you perform it and um, might be really based on the situation that you're in, they might be safer for longer. So, for example, <clears throat> um, as this example with doctors, when a medical doctor makes a differential diagnosis, they usually, and they always, they should do that based on data, right? They would see you at your blood values and check you out and so on. They, they slowly work their way towards a diagnosis, right? And that's very data-driven. Whereas, for example, a nurse that deals with uh, patients on an individual basis, they need to be much more aware of very many idiosyncratic sort of situations and, and, and people's personalities and so on. So their job, let's say, would be, as a job, you know, would be much further in the future to be impacted in some sense. But overall, I think it's pretty clear, and the estimates by m many analysts and many um, many of my colleagues, such as, for example, Kai Fu Lee and so on, there's many that make estimates, and I, I agree with them, uh, and I have my own calculations that perhaps in the next 10, 12 years, 50% of jobs will be quite heavily impacted, mm -hmm. if not completely replaced even, you know. Right. But again, in the, in the next 10, 20 years, those replaced jobs will at least in the next 20 years be replaced with, I think, much more exciting roles and tasks. Right. But in the very long run, I think we need, really need to sit down and uh, really rethink our role right. in society, I think. Yes. I'm going to end with a philosophical question, and I think I know what Kaifu Lee would answer this, mm -hmm. but I'm interested in your answer, which is if we are simply super, super complex algorithms and we're creating artificially other super, super complex algorithms that may in many ways replace us, does it fundamentally matter if we do ultimately get phased out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> Matter to whom? That would be the first question, the counter question. <laughs> so, so. Well, I know it matters to me, but uh, yeah. in, in, the, in the grand scheme of things, does it make any difference if it's us here or them? <laughs> so, from a from if you ask me personally, or if you, I mean, if you were to ask me from an evolutionary perspective, right, this would be like another step forward in the evolutionary ladder. Arguably, actually, this would be breaching the entire Darwin theory because actually this is not how evolution works, right? You're right. not meant to be... This is not selection. This no, is, exactly this is right. self-imposed Exactly right. It yeah. breaks the whole idea about Darwinism and evolution. But if that was to happen, uh, to whom would it matter? Well, well, to humanity it would matter then, obviously, right? And the... Um, but one could also look at it as being the the step that that you know we move forward in and in the way how our journey is meant to be meant to be going forward. So um, for me, it matters in the sense that I would be s sad that it would happen, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe we need to <laughs> now. I'm making this up a little bit, right? A philosophical question, as you said. But maybe we need some type of sanctuaries in the future for humans, right? That we have these species that once existed wow. and were the peer of the the human zoo. Yeah, something along those lines, you know. Some uh, I think you can find some jokes of that sort also on the internet. But I, that that is a, is a scenario. But again, this we look very far into the future, and then there are many many question marks as to whether we would reach such a situation. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I guess the provocation would be that that uh, the way to think about this would be that's not we're not building something that is other to us. What we're building is us, 
And if what we're doing is essentially trying to replicate human intelligence and trying to, mm. uh, then then essentially, you know, the sort of the meat version of us uh, being phased out doesn't matter because there's still an us that mm. continues. That's one way to look at it. I, I, I encourage, um, now that we going towards the end of the discussion, but there's also this very uh, good book, uh, which is sort of the standard reading for those that study artificial intelligence. It's um, uh, it's a book called Artificial Intelligence, A Modern Approach by Russell and Norwick. And the first chapter you will, this is a very technical book, but in the first chapter you see four different ways of looking as to what the goals of AI would be. Mm -hmm. And one of those is what you mentioned, that some AI researchers are working to build something that is uh, just like us. But others believe, for example, that AI will be just mimicking us, so it will never be like us. It will just be a mimic, like you know, a puppet. And then there is another category which suggests that it is actually completely its own intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, and personally, I actually prefer to call it machine intelligence and not artificial intelligence, because what type of an intelligence and the actions that come out of these systems, I think they will be they will be having the nature of the m machine, you know, its own character, like fractals in, in, in mathematics, you know, like you have these very complex patterns and I think it will be that type of personality, if you even want to call it that, and it will be, it may not be at all like it is like us. It will be possibly completely different. We might not be even un able to understand how it would work. Mm. I have to so, say that would be my preference, I think, that, that we create... I mean, because, like I said before, we can already identify cats in photographs. Mm. So why don't we build intelligences mm. that can do things that we can't currently mm. do? Mm. Uh, which which brings us to not not artificial intelligence, but augmented intelligence mm. to help people think further and deeper and mm. uh, and and reach further. Is is that on anybody's agenda, or am I just wishful thinking? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Like, <clears throat> um, I, I agree. Like this, it's. Also, this idea of augmented workforce, for example, you know, how can you, when you look more practically, like employees and so on, uh, but be, how can you upgrade them in some sense? You know, how can you make them, how can you give people abilities that they don't have today? Like either like very hands-on, like almost towards cybernetics and, you know, cyborg type ideas, which is sort of in part happening already because people have already technology installed in them if you like you know yeah. uh, that that will bring them forward but also in ways where what you're doing today in a small way you can enhance these things much smarter and quicker by using ai you know when you search for documents or mm -hmm. any of the tasks that you do today which would be tedious and take a long time or which might even be dangerous right sure so, so you would be upgraded in that sense um and it seems mm. to also reveal new human abilities that we didn't know we had, mm. which I think is a really interesting uh, potential for the technologies. Mm. That's a good point too, exactly. Mm. I mean, we certainly, if you think about it, it has happened many times before with technology. When you think of music and, um, you know, electronic music, you know, the, the type of music that's created today and 20, 30, 40 years ago, uh, coming from a machine, you know, from mm. a Pult with this microprocessors has created a completely new category of music genres, right? Which have yeah. influenced our emotions and the way how we react to the world in, in, in completely different ways. So, so yeah, along those types of thinking, I can completely see that. And you think of other examples like you know <laughs> the whole internet phenomena and the whole social networking part, whereby when we react on Twitter to to people. Uh, we don't even know who they are often. I mean, we have no clue who they are. They might be somewhere at the other end of the world and we talk to people which we never s have never seen, will never see, right? Yeah. And so it, this 
technology changes ways. And I agree with you. It's And then you could become, again, philosophical. Is that the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it? Because I have friends that don't like digital music at all. Electronic music is like, go away with that stuff, right? right. It's either classical or uh, heavy metal and, and guitars, right? And so yeah. some, and, and so, uh, but others embrace it as, you know, the new way of experiencing things in the world. And I guess on that note, <coughs> artificial intelligence is a broadening of our palette of technologies rather than abandoning the old and embracing the new, as some people think that you need to do for electronic music. I think so. I think, I think so too, yeah. Christian, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me. Christian Gutmann, Vice President, Global Head of Artificial Intelligence and Chief AI and Data Scientist at Tieto, and almost certainly real human person. And that's the MTF Podcast. If you enjoyed, please do share it with someone else, like it on Facebook, subscribe on your podcast player of choice, and do let us know. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll talk soon. Cheers. Cheers.